Ronald Reagan um, uh, understood how to get things done, uh, understood intuitively uh, the limits of American uh, popular support for conservatism. And I think he would have, my personal view, is that he would have been very uncomfortable uh, in the, had he been around for the current uh, era of American politics where you have uh, two uh, polarized political parties, very little scope for compromise and basic fundamental disagreement on what constitutes American democracy. Welcome to the New Flesh Podcast, the podcast you deserve. My name is Ricky Allpike. Today, we bring you an interview we did with Ewan Morgan. Ewan is an author, historian, and expert on American presidents. We spoke at length about Ronald Reagan and the current political situation in the US. Ewan blew us away with his encyclopedic knowledge of 20th century American politics, and we can't wait to have him back. Ewan Morgan is Emeritus Professor of United States History at the Institute of the Americas, University College London. He served as Chair of the Executive Committee for the Historians of the 20th Century United States from 2007 until 2013, and a Distinguished Fellow of the Rothermere American Institute, University of Oxford. He has published five monographs, 13 edited books, and over 40 journal articles and book chapters, including The Presidential Image, A History from Theodore Roosevelt to Donald Trump, Hollywood and the Great Depression, American Film, Politics and Society in the 1930s, The Liberal Consensus Reconsidered, American Politics and Society in the Postal Era, The Age of Deficits, Presidents and Unbalanced Budgets from Jimmy Carter to George W. Bush, Reagan, an American icon, and most recently, FDR, Transforming the Presidency and Renewing America. And too many more to mention. Ewan, welcome to the new flesh. That's quite a wrap there. Well, thanks very much uh, for having me. Now, Ewan, I'm going to start, uh, before we get into presidential matters, I know you are a bit of a cinephile. I can spy a Casablanca poster behind uh, you. So I'd like to ask you just a couple of questions, uh, control questions that I like to ask of, of fellow cinephiles. It tells me a lot about a person. So just, just quickly, uh, Henry Fonda or James Stewart? Well, Henry Fonda, because he was a Democrat. Mm, that's very interesting. Fred Astaire or Gene Kelly? Fred Astaire, because the 1930s movies were great. Okay. And finally, James Cagney or Humphrey Bogart? Ooh, that's a tough one. I'm going to have to say Humphrey Bogart because I named my son Humphrey. Oh, wow. <laughs> you went all the way. No, that tells me a lot about you. I'm a James Stewart man myself, so it's it's uh, fascinating to, to meet uh, someone on the other side of the aisle, so to speak. <laughs> Thanks for that. <laughs> anyway, uh, into the meat of it, you've written about uh, presidents and on all matters involving the executive branch, but you have decided to write in a more expansive way on two particular presidents, FDR and Reagan. But could you tell us what drew you to these presidents, generally speaking, and maybe start with FDR? Okay, well, basically, uh, FDR and Reagan were the two most significant presidents of the uh 20th century, uh, indeed, uh, of the entire era, uh, entire history of the American Republic. Uh, what drew me to FDR was that uh, he uh, uh, was president at a time of intense crisis for the United States. First, the domestic crisis of the Great Depression, and uh, his New Deal program uh, developed government uh, uh, responses to the 
repression and created in that process uh, the modern uh, government of the United States. Ronald Reagan, uh, even though he was a Democrat in early life and uh, voted for FDR in all of FDR's four elections from 1932 to 1944, converts to conservatism and republicanism in the 50s and 60s. And he takes office with the intention of rolling back uh, Roosevelt's legacy of big government. Uh, But uh, uh, Reagan is not wholly successful in in that uh, uh, goal, as we might discuss later on. Both presidents were also instrumental in making America a superpower. Uh, uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt, uh, as commander-in-chief in in World War II, oversaw uh, uh, America's crucial uh, role in the Grand Alliance uh, that defeated uh, Hitler's Germany and then Japan and uh, laid the foundations for the United States to play a hegemonic role in the post-war world. Uh, Reagan takes office at a time when the United States appears to be in decline in terms of world power, and uh, he is determined to restore that power in pursuit of his overall goal, not simply of containing communism, uh, but uh, uh, reversing it and uh, um, uh, establishing what he sets out not simply to manage the Cold War, but ultimately to win it. You mentioned earlier that you were a Democrat. Did you ever think you'd write a book about a conservative icon like Ronald Reagan? Because these books are usually written by Hoover Institution scholars. I can honestly say I never anticipated that I would. I marched against Ronald Reagan in the early 1980s over the uh, establishment of cruise missile bases in the United Kingdom, Uh, I found his politics uh, uh, utterly uh, antithetical to mine. Uh, I come from South Wales, that's the Labour heartland. Uh, Well, it was when I was there anyway. Yeah, And, uh, uh, you know, my my inclinations are very much towards the Democrats. Uh, I had the opportunity to write about Ronald Reagan. And uh, unless you're writing about somebody like Hitler or Stalin, uh, and monsters, obviously. Well, the more you find out about your subject, the more you begin to realize what made them tick. And I ended up uh, being uh, somewhat more sympathetic, uh, but uh, retaining the right to criticize uh, insofar as Reagan uh, was concerned. I think you have to measure him uh, on his own goals. Uh, Any biographer has uh, a responsibility to try to explain uh, uh, his or her subject to readers. And instead of me uh, imposing my political views uh, on uh, the readers, I decided I would try to put Ronald Reagan in as reasonable a light as possible uh, for people to understand why he is significant. Uh, I'm always amazed that uh, many Americans, particularly um, Democrats, uh, are deeply hostile to Reagan. Uh, I had a somewhat more detached view of them, uh, 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 but uh, even in Britain, uh, um, uh, I uh, have uh, run into some degree of criticism for being 
too understanding and uh, perhaps too gentle in my criticism. Was was that a hard thing to do? Because it, it seems as though uh, to approach presidential scholarship, you know, uh, when when your political views are so different than the subject that that you're studying. I mean, did you did you have to fight any urges or? Or given the fact that, that, that you're from Wales, I mean, are you, are you detached in that way? Did that give you some distance? Um, well, not necessarily. Um, uh, you, you know, I, my views have moderated over the years uh, as I've grown older, possibly wiser, although I'm not sure about that. Uh, um, you know, I, I began to appreciate Ronald Reagan uh, as a pragmatic ideologue rather than, you know, I was writing in, the, uh, well, Trump wasn't president by the time the uh, book came out, but um, American politics had entered a deeply polarized state in the early years of the 21st century. And the more I found out about Reagan, uh, uh, who tried to uh, uh, govern both as governor of California and as president of the United States, as a leader of all the people, not just those who had voted for him, uh, I began to feel that uh, uh, Ronald Reagan um, uh, understood how to get things done, uh, understood intuitively uh, the limits of American uh, popular support for conservatism. And I think he would have, my personal view is that he would have been very uncomfortable uh, in uh, had he been around for the current uh, era of American politics, where you have uh, two um, polarized political parties, very little scope for compromise and basic fundamental disagreement on what constitutes American democracy. And when I did the paperback version of the book, I was asked to write a preface um, uh, effectively about remembering Reagan in the age of Trump. And I drew some very critical comparisons between uh, Reagan and Trump, crit highly critical of Trump, possibly seeing Reagan through rose-tinted spectacles, some people might say, uh, because uh, I think he was far superior as a president and a politician to Donald Trump. Hmm. Well, uh, before we dive into uh, Ronald Reagan uh, headfirst, just to stay with the scholarship question, because you raise an interesting point about, uh, I'm fascinated, because when I read your book, I what I really liked was that it seemed like to come from a a saner time, you know, uh, and I mean that on. Uh, uh, I enjoyed how uh, even you were even handed in 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 uh, a. And this is a good thing for me. I don't know whether you read, but in an Oliver Stone sort of way, like in the way he did Nixon, like it's sort of human portrayal of. But you, the warts and all were there, but it was fair. And I just feel that, you know, uh, if you were writing the book today. Wouldn't there? Would do you find that there would be a a pressure to have a more um, a, a, a an activist uh, agenda in mind, even writing a book like this? Well, that's a difficult one. Uh, when one deals with somebody like Ronald Reagan, uh, one has to try to be as objective as possible. I think uh, if uh, if I were going to write 
to use your term, an activist book uh, arguing that uh, the age of Reagan uh, uh, is over, that um, uh, the uh, anti-government ethos uh, of uh, Reaganite conservatism has run its course, and we're now in an era, uh, whether it's uh, for a populist like Trump or uh, more traditional liberal Democrats like Biden, where the state is now seen as the answer uh, to a lot of society's uh, challenges. Um, obviously, when one writes a biography, it, the the timing of when one is writing is very significant because it, however much historians uh, uh, claim objectivity, there's an element of uh, rewriting the past from the vantages, from the vantage of your own time, um, ten years is a long time in American politics, uh, a very long time. And perhaps I might have said something different about uh, Ronald Reagan. I think that uh, uh, Reagan's political legacy is still affecting uh, the um, United States. Uh, because he was instrumental for the so-called great sorting uh, that uh, underlies uh, today's politics. I'll explain that. Uh, uh, for much of the 20th century, the two main parties, uh, the Democrats and the Republicans, uh, were coalitions that came together to win national elections. And there were liberal Democrats, and there were conservative Democrats, conservative Democrats predominantly, but not exclusively located in the southern states, the ex-Confederate states uh, of the United States. Uh, similarly, there were liberal Republicans, um, people like Wendell Wilkie, the 1940s standard bearer, even Dwight D. Eisenhower, the Republican president of the 1950s, uh, uh, was far too... Uh, uh, the left of uh, today's Republicans. There was always liberal Republicans and there were conservative Republicans. What Ronald Reagan did uh, was to complete the process initiated by Richard Nixon of creating a new Republican uh, majority of voters in presidential elections. And he did this in large part by converting uh, white Southerners who are hitherto bedrock Democrats, uh, a, a historical legacy of the fact that Abraham Lincoln, way back in the Civil War era, was a Republican. And that historical legacy had ensured the perpetuation of the Democratic Party's domination in the South for 100 years after the Civil War. But in, as a result of the Civil Rights Revolution of the 1960s and the National Democratic Party's support for that, White Southerners began to turn against the party. Richard Nixon capitalized and exploited, uh, capitalized on and exploited that. Uh, initially, Ronald Reagan carried it forward. And uh, Ronald Reagan in 1980, of course, defeats uh, the first Southern uh, Deep South president since the Civil War, Jimmy Carter, who hailed from Georgia. And despite uh, Carter's uh, Southerness, uh, Ronald Reagan wins every uh, southern state in 1980, with the exception of Carter's home state of Georgia. He repeats it in 1984, uh, winning every southern state uh, on this occasion in the Electoral College. 
And that sets the foundation for the development of a something that has never truly existed before, a strong Republican Party in the South. And uh, it's carried forward at congressional level by uh, people like Newt Gingrich and Bears Fruit in the 1994 midterm elections uh, in the during the Clinton presidency, uh, which sees the Republicans carry a majority of congressional and senatorial seats in the South for the first time uh, in the 20th century. So what you have today is that uh, the conservative region of the Democratic Party has moved into the um, uh, the Republican Party. Uh, the Democratic Party is now relatively weak in the South. It once dominated. Uh, the Republicans are in the ascendancy. And in the meantime, uh, the Democrats now, a uh, without that uh, conservative tail, if you like, uh, of the Southern Democrats, uh, can now afford to be more liberal. And they have therefore been able to mop up areas uh, in the North and the West of the United States, which once hewed to uh, liberal Republican tendencies. So instead of two coalitions, um, you now have two parties which are programmatic and uh, dedicated uh, to pursuit of their agenda without compromise. And unfortunately, they are finely balanced. And uh, therefore, uh, uh, that has intensified the polarization. Uh, no party is dominant. Uh, uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt, uh, for example, was so successful uh, that uh, he um, uh, he forced the Republicans into accepting large uh, elements of the New Deal. Similarly, Ronald Reagan was so successful that he forced the, Demo the Democrats to acknowledge that the era of big government was over. Court. Bill Clinton. So, uh, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, 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 you, you have that, but that since the Reagan era, uh, American politics have become much more competitive, much more finely balanced. And both parties believe that the only way they can win national power is not by trying to convert people from the other side, but by mobilizing their base supporters and maximizing turnout by their base. And that leads to a politics which, frankly, cannot uh, work well in the United States. In a system of um, uh, government of separate institutions which share power, Compromise is the glue that holds it together and makes it work. And compromise is now uh, a dirty word in American politics. Ronald Reagan did not want that to happen, but he was instrumental in what I, I and others called the great sorting, uh, which saw the conservative elements of the Democratic Party move into the Republican, uh, into the re Republican column and the uh, liberal stroke moderate elements of the Republican Party drift into the Democratic column. That's a wonderful outline of the, of the realignments uh, that have happened in, in the late 20th century and uh, leading into where we're at now. We'll, we'll get into where we're at now perhaps a little bit later, but I think this is a fantastic 
place to jump into your book, Reagan, uh, American Icon, uh, with all of that context in mind. So before we hit you with some specific question, would you mind giving us uh, listeners a, a crash course in, in Ronald Reagan? Who was the, the 40th president? Okay, well, uh, Ronald Reagan is born in the small northern Illinois town of Tampico in six, uh, on 6th of February 1911. Uh, his parents are at best lower middle class uh, uh, they're perpetually hard up. Uh, his father, Jack, is a shoe salesman, uh, but is also an alcoholic. And that blights Ronald Reagan's um, uh, youth, uh, um, uh, his father's alcoholism. Uh, his mother, Nell Reagan, uh, is the great lodestar of stability in uh, Reagan's life. Uh, uh, she inspires his religiosity through her membership of the Church of Christ and instills in Ronald Reagan his foremost political quality, I think, optimism. For Nell Reagan, uh, uh, things, uh, whatever happened, it was all part of God's purpose and things would work out for the best in the end. And Ronald Reagan in inherited that optimism. And uh, the, remarkably, Ronald Reagan uh, goes to Eureka College, a small uh, Midwestern uh, uh, disciple of Disciples of Christ College in Illinois. And he graduates in 1932. He's not a particularly good student. He's far too interested in extracurricular activities, uh, sports and uh, dramatics and student journalism. Graduates in 1932 with the Depression uh, coming into its fourth year and reaching its worst phase. And lo and behold, uh, uh, within uh, months of graduating, he's landed a plum job uh, uh, as a sports announcer with a radio station in Iowa, despite lacking any um, experience and qualifications in uh, sports announcing. For the next four years, he establishes himself as one of the foremost voices of sport um, radio in the Midwest. Then he decides to try his hand at movie acting. He goes out to California. Again, the famous Reagan good fortune. He gets a, um, uh, a contract uh, uh, from Warner Brothers and is launched into the movies. But... It's a long way up for Ronald Reagan because he begins in the B-movies. And uh, for the first four years of his uh, Hollywood career, he's stuck in the basement uh, uh, making movies that uh, the studio didn't want good. They wanted them tomorrow. Uh, uh, but lo and behold, again, good fortune intervenes. Um, uh, uh, Warner Brothers are making a uh, picture about... Uh, the uh, uh, famous football coach of uh, Notre Dame, uh, Notre Dame University, Newt Rockney, and they're looking for someone to play the tragic sports star who died uh, young in 1920, George Gipp. And uh, Ronald Reagan, uh, uh, when he tests for the role, dramatically displays his um, uh, capacity for sporting movement, uh, strength, and so on. He's a natural to play Gip. And from that point on, 
his B-movie days are apparently behind him and he begins to make A-movies. But he has a bad break for a change. Uh, he uh, has to go off to war in uh, 1942. Uh, his eyesight is so poor that he cannot be uh, dispatched to the front line. So he ends up uh, making uh, documentary movies in Hollywood uh, for the armed services and helping with bond drives. By the time Reagan comes back into uh, uh, Hollywood life at the end of the war in 1945, he's no longer the young man, uh, the all-American of the uh, late 1930s. He's got middle-aged. Uh, he's um, no, can no longer play the useful roles that he uh, he once had. And Warner Brothers, although they signed him to a very lucrative new contract, simply cannot find the role, right role for him. And for the next 10 years, Ronald Reagan is beginning a decline or uh, on a path of decline in his movie career, which brings him back to the B movies from when he once started. But uh, there is salvation because... Uh, he wins uh, uh, the role of a television host for a new anthology program of dramas which airs on uh, uh, Sunday nights, uh, GE Theatre. And this puts Ronald Reagan before larger audiences than I've ever seen him in his movie career. He enjoys a new renaissance. And part of this is that... Uh, uh, out of his role as a GE uh, employee, corporate uh, employee, is not simply to present uh, the GE hour every Sunday night of the uh, television season, but also to visit the uh, far-flung GE corporate empire of something like 140 factories across the United States. And Ronald Reagan develops a conservative message. By now, he was once a Democrat, but he's now beginning to uh, shift conservatism for two main reasons. A, he doesn't like paying the high taxes uh, that he's been lumbered with as a movie star. And B, he's beginning to worry that the Democrats are soft on communism, soft on communism both at home uh, in terms of toleration of uh, subversives and B, soft on communism abroad by not using American power fully uh, to uh, uh, challenge the Soviet Union. So that's at the moment that he's uh, uh, entering the, uh, the General Electric uh, firmament He's becoming a, uh, uh, an, an increasingly committed conservative, and he uses his visits to the General Electric uh, factories to promote a conservative message of anti-taxes, anti-government, and anti-communism. And he's so successful at this that it brings him to the attention of Republican leaders, most notably Vice President Richard Nixon. Nixon uh, recruits Reagan to become a spokesman for him in the 1960 presidential election. Reagan says, oh, that's great. I'll join the Republican Party uh, and leave the Democrats. And Nixon says, no, 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 don't do that. You're much more useful for me as a Democrat for Nixon. Well, 
Nixon loses the election, and two years later, Reagan makes the final break with the Democrats, and he joins the Republican Party in 1962. In 1964, he uh, gains national prominence by making a 30-minute televised address on behalf of the doomed conservative Republican presidential candidacy of Senator Barry Goldwater of Arizona. Goldwater goes down to landslide defeat at the hands of incumbent president, Democrat Lyndon B. Johnson. Uh, but uh, many Republicans remember the one, uh, the, the Reagan address as the one bright spot of an otherwise dismal campaign. And a group of California businessmen make it their uh, uh, job to persuade Reagan to run for California governor in 1966. Now, California is on the cusp of becoming the largest state of the Union. Uh, it, it actually overtakes New York. If you want the precise date, it's 1963. So it's becoming a key battleground between Democrats and Republicans. Hitherto a Democratic state, In 1966, Reagan defeats incumbent um, Governor Pat Brown, uh, better known now as the father of Jerry Brown. Brown is going for a third term in office. Reagan inflicts a landslide defeat on him through his capacity to win over Democratic identifying voters, many of whom have migrated for the prosperity and jobs available in California from the American South. So this is the beginning of the kind of realignment uh, that Ronald Reagan will develop as president. Um, as a governor, he, uh, uh, he, he uh, governs uh, from the center. He has to cooperate with the Democratic Assembly. Uh, he shows a capacity for Uh, compromise. For example, he raises taxes in order to uh, close the state budget deficit, which is inherited from the Democratic administration. But even as his his actions uh, are at variance with his stated philosophy, he continues to articulate uh, conservative ideals in his rhetoric and establishes himself as the foremost spokesman of Republican conservatism in the nation at large. He makes a desultory effort to uh, win the uh, Republican presidential nomination in 1968, uh, but uh, he has entered the race too late, really, to defeat the successful candidacy of um, Richard Nixon. Uh, But Nixon recognizes Reagan as a, a a useful ally on the right of the party and helps to boost him uh, through giving him foreign policy, uh, uh, informal foreign policy responsibilities. For example, uh, uh, Nixon sends Reagan uh, ahead of uh, Nixon's visit to China to tell uh, the um, uh, Chiang Kai-shek regime in Taiwan uh, that the United States is really now going to uh, play its uh, China card with Beijing, not with Taiwan. So Ray- Reagan has some interesting foreign policy experience, which many people uh, overlook. 
1976, he tries again uh, to uh, to wrest the Republican nomination. He's running against Gerald Ford, uh, who's uh, uh, become president uh, on the uh, resignation of Richard Nixon in 1964. Uh, he challenges Ford by running from the right. Ford just about holds him off. It's an incredibly tight race, um, uh, but uh, Ford's uh, uh, the power of the presidency and the patronage power of the presidency enables Ford to just about uh, uh, win a bare majority of delegates uh, claim the nomination at the 1976 convention. Ford loses narrowly to Jimmy Carter, and this sets the scene for Ronald Reagan to come along and say, we can only win the presidency by being a truly uh, conservative party. And he is helped by two developments. Number one, the United States is in the grip of the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression. Uh, the democratic uh, tendency to use Keynesian solutions uh, to solve economic problems won't work, don't work in these circumstances. Uh, by the time Reagan runs for president in 1980, inflation is a whopping 13% and unemployment is 7%, making for a misery index, as it was then called, of 20%. Meanwhile, the uh, uh, Nixonian efforts to uh, uh, develop detente with the communist world are unraveling. Uh, the Soviets appear to be gaining the ascendancy in the Cold War. Um, they build up uh, their nuclear armory uh, in the late 70s. Uh, they uh, they make their first incursion beyond Eastern Europe uh, to invade Afghanistan in uh, uh, late 1979. And Ronald Reagan runs for president warning Americans that the nation is in danger of losing the Cold War unless it takes a much tougher stance with the Soviets. The economic factors are essential in Reagan's victory. Carter goes to the, Jimmy Carter uh, seeks a second term going before the voters with the worst economic indicators since Herbert Hoover in 1932. Uh, that uh, gives uh, Ronald Reagan the elements of his victory. Foreign policy is significantly less important, even though the Iranian hostage crisis of 1979-80 has demonstrated uh, that uh, American power is in apparent decline. Uh, but it's domestic and economic factors that are critical in 1980. In many ways, it was a vote against Carter than for Reagan, but Reagan has his landslide and he uses that as a mandate to introduce the greatest changes in American government and public policy since the 1930s. Wow, what a bravura uh, a performance, Ewan. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that. I think we're, 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 we're all set up now, uh, so I hope people appreciate that. So firstly... What what was the biggest surprises to come out of your research into Reagan? Were, were there things that completely changed your perception of the man? I mean, we sort of touched on it before, but, you know, it could be a couple of things for me. I mean, there were only uh, comparatively little, I guess. But one was I can't 
I just cannot, fa- and I know that Arnold Schwarzenegger was Republican, but I can't fathom California being Republican ever again uh, be- because of how uh, blue it is right now. And secondly, more on Reagan himself, I had no idea that he, A, he was married to Jane, Wy- Jane Wyman, which is embarrassing, and two, that he had kids with her because I thought that was a deal breaker in, in the 20th century. They, 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 those, and and you, as you say in your book, they were sidelined to the point where I didn't even know they existed, really, like not without, you know, looking it up. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, uh, Ronald Reagan was married to uh, Jane Wyman from 1940 to 1948. Uh, uh, they divorced because, I'm quoting her here, that uh, she was bored silly by his political obsessions, which were uh, to the fore even then, as Ronald Reagan uh, gets uh, to be less significant as a movie star after World War II. He becomes much more involved in politics, becomes the uh, president of the Screen Actors Guild, and uh, is uh, instrumental in leading the Guild at a very difficult time. Uh, Hollywood strikes of 1946-7, Hollywood Red Scare, of 1947, 48, and 1950 to 51. And, you know, he, he you know, as his movie career hits the skids, this guy finds salvation in politics. But for Jane Wyman, uh, it's driving her nuts. And uh, in the parlance of the day, she cites mental cruelty as the grand divorce. <laughs> uh, and, uh, yes, uh, uh, they had two children. Um, one child born in 1940, Maureen, a second child who l- survived less than uh, one day. Uh, very traumatic uh, time for Ronald Reagan and Jane Wyman. Uh, this uh, uh, happened in 1947. And a um, an adopted child because... Uh, uh, the second pregnancy was uh, unexpected. Uh, it was thought that Wyman couldn't have more children, so they adopted a child, uh, Michael, uh, who went on to become a uh, conservative radio shock jock in the uh, 1990s and beyond. So, on your point about California, well, California was different then. Um, it didn't have such a large Hispanic population, uh, California was two parts, really. Northern California, uh, with San Francisco as its hub, uh, was the center of uh, liberalism and the stronghold of the Democratic Party. But the real population growth was occurring in the Los Angeles, San Diego uh, region. And it was there that conservatism was making inroads among uh, white, uh, blue-collar workers who wanted to preserve uh, their uh, neighborhoods against uh, uh, African-American settlement, who wanted to preserve their schools against uh, state and uh, federal efforts to uh, regulate them, and who were deeply fearful of uh, disorder. 1965, of course, you have the Watts race riot, and Ronald Reagan is seen as someone uh, who will reclaim the streets from the forces of disorder. 
Mm. Well, what would you say were Reagan's top contributions in terms of policy and approaches, both foreign and domestic? Ronald Reagan, as president, did something that uh, was the exact reverse of what he had done as governor. I mentioned that he actually raised taxes as governor because there was a state budget deficit and constitutionally California uh, could not, the state government could not run a deficit. So he had to do something. There isn't a national balanced budget amendment. And Reagan inherited the presidency at a time of uh, huge economic problems. Stagflation seemed unconquerable. And what he did was that he pushed the biggest tax cut in American history. Uh, He's not the only Republican tax cutter. The Republicans have been trying to do this for several years, um, uh, but they're in a minority in Congress. Ronald Reagan wins the presidency. And his initial goal is to promote the Economic Recovery Tax Act of 1981, which is still the largest tax cut in American history. And Reagan says, um, cut taxes, get government off people's back, and the hard work and productivity of American uh, investors, American business, American workers will solve everything. What we're going to do, get out of the way of the people and people will solve our economic problem. Well, uh, he has a, a an unforeseen hitch in his economic policy. I mentioned that uh, inflation was 13%. Now, the Federal Reserve, which is the American Central Bank and is an independent actor, decided that something had to be done to uh, uh, about inflation, and it imposes the most draconian monetary restraint in 20th century history in 1981-1982. This succeeds in bringing down inflation from 13% to 6%, but at the cost of the worst recession since the Great Depression, 1981 to 1982, something like 3.5 million jobs uh, were lost. So, uh, but 1982, the um, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the 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 Federal Reserve um, takes its foot off the brake, believes it's done enough to choke inflation, and the uh, American economy enters a period of growth in readiness for Reagan's re-election. What Reagan has done is to make low taxes a staple of American political culture. Thereafter, no president will run for office saying, I'm going to raise taxes. Uh, Walter Mondale made the mistake in 1984 of saying that the deficit, the budget deficit, uh, was the greatest problem facing America and that taxes would have to be raised to, uh, to close the gap. Mondale goes down to uh, a catastrophic defeat. He only wins two. Uh, uh, he only wins his home state in the Electoral College, uh, Minnesota, and the District of Columbia, uh, Washington D.C. Uh, so Ronald Reagan has proved that if you want to be elected president of the United States, either promise to raise tax, to either promise to cut taxes but don't in any circumstances say you're going to raise them. That's the first thing. But 
to continue this uh, Reaganite legacy, the Federal Reserve's monetary policy has depressed the economy to such an extent that the administration's rosy projections of uh, growing revenues from taxes uh, uh, delivered by the harvest of growth that will come from the tax cuts doesn't happen, okay? Uh, and what you have is that the budget deficit grows alarmingly. You know, it, you, you can't begin to imagine what Americans saw and felt about the budget deficit in the 1980s. 1982, they have their first 100 billion budget deficit in American history. Two years later, it's the first 200 billion. And this is a country which really was concerned about deficits in, you know, Jimmy Carter's biggest deficit was $79 billion. And Reagan was saying, you know, we, we've been uh, spent into uh, perdition by the Democrats, and here he is. And it's largely to do with the tax cuts and the fact that Reagan has ratcheted up the defense budget. Uh, dramatically. So, how do you fund this growing deficit? Well, the way that the Americans did it was that the Federal Reserve, uh, even though it reduced uh, interest rates, kept American interest rates higher than interest rates in Europe and Japan, with the consequence that the United States became a honeypot for global investment. You know, you could get a really good return on your money in the United States. Uh, a lot of investors bought U.S. Treasury securities to fund the deficit. Now, that was great for financing the deficit. But what it also did was to jack up the value of the dollar beyond anything anybody could have anticipated. I was in the United States in 1985, and uh, I got one pound for a dollar. Okay, that was the exchange rate. I was there in 1979. It was £2.40. It was $2.40 for, for a pound. What this means is that uh, imports are cheap, but American exports are uncompetitive because the dollar's too strong. And what that means is that America in the process of deindustrialization, the great industrial heartland of the Midwest and the Northeast, which specializes in steel, heavy industry, and so on, they find it very hard to sell their products abroad. Uh, imports are much cheaper. And what you have for the first time in American history is that the number of jobs in manufacturing declines for the first time over the over a period of a decade in American history, the 1980s is the first decade in American history where manufacturing jobs are in decline, and that continues straight through to the present time. Uh, of course, uh, Trump promised to bring American jobs back uh, in his 2016 um, uh, campaign, uh, but uh, his success was very limited. So that's another of Reagan's legacies, an unanticipated and unwanted one. Now, I mentioned that uh, part of the uh, deficit explosion was due to Reagan's defense expansion. He, he is convinced that the only thing the Soviets will respond to is superior American military power. He believes that the United States 
has let the Soviet Union get ahead in the 1970s under cover of the detente pursued by the Nixon, Ford and Carter presidencies. He sets out to pursue a strategy of peace through strength, building up American power uh, in all manner of ways. There's no one area which gets more. Uh, but uh, he builds up American power. <clears throat> he even promises uh, to revolutionize strategic doctrine. Up until now, um, nuclear uh, deterrence has depended on both sides in the Cold War having a balance of terror, in other words, a capacity to destroy each other, which prevents or uh, which makes war unthinkable. Uh, but Reagan uh, launches something called the Strategic Defense Initiative, Star Wars, as it's known, and uh, that has the goal of giving the United States a defensive system in space against incoming missiles. Now, if, if uh, you have a balance of terror, because both sides will not uh, uh, dare to attack each other because of the retaliatory consequences, but now you have one side seemingly about to develop defensive capabilities, that changes the ball game. The Soviets get really very concerned. They think that Ronald Reagan really wants to blow them out of existence. He doesn't, but they are so fearful of him uh, that 1983 is probably the most dangerous moment in uh, Cold War history. Uh, the Soviets are convinced that the able archer NATO exercise of late 1983 is a cover for a, a preparation for a nuclear attack on the Soviet Union. And uh, although the moment passes, uh, the word gets back through to the West through a, uh, uh, a Soviet spy in the, the, uh, uh, in the Kremlin circle, Oleg Gordievsky, that the uh, Soviets are fearful uh, of Western intent at a preemptive military strike. And this persuades Ronald Reagan, who hates military, uh, who hates nuclear weaponry, with a passion uh, more usually associated with uh, an anti-nuclear campaigner. He tolerates them because they're essential for power. But his goal ultimately is to get rid of them through establishing a Cold War, a post-Cold War peace. And he decides that in his second term. He will uh, prioritize uh, negotiations with the Soviet Union. He's fortunate because a new Soviet leader in the person of Mikhail Gorbachev uh, takes office in 1985, and Gorbachev recognizes that the Soviet Union must reduce its Cold War spending on defense if it is to rebuild its uh, underperforming uh, domestic economy. Reagan and Gorbachev meet in three summits, beginning in Geneva in 1985, and ultimately agree uh, the Intermediate Nuclear Force Treaty of 1987, which eliminates an entire category of nuclear weapons, medium-range nuclear weapons. Uh, and this is the first time in the history of the world since the atomic bomb was developed in 1945, that there had been a reduction in nuclear weaponry, uh, breaking the uh, trend of perpetual expansion. 
And that lays the basis for uh, a new era of detente between the Soviets and the Americans. Uh, but Ronald Reagan uh, will have left office by the time that uh, the uh, Cold War ends, but his legacy will be the coming down of the, Ber- of the Berlin Wall and ultimately the uh, collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. Now, Ewan, I, I, I have a slightly silly follow-up question here. Was the Star Wars program ever a legitimate program or or was it a bluff? Uh, It was a legitimate program in the sense that they poured vast sums of money into it, $60 billion by centuries end. Um, Was it a bluff? Possibly. I think Ronald Reagan, in his heart of hearts, truly believed that it would give the United States security. He was prepared to give up offensive nuclear weapons but he wanted the certainty that America could be defended against some, as he put it, nutcase whose country developed nuclear weapons uh, uh, in the future. You know, you'd think about uh, North Korea in that regard. So uh, Ronald Reagan, who, you know, his security ideas are shaped by the 1940s uh, when the United States had a, an atomic monopoly and uh, he's, 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 he's out of sympathy with the atomic world. You know, he really hates atomic weapons. And he's happy. Uh, he, Star Wars, SDI, is an example, one of the very few examples of a pre- presidentially initiated and presidentially imposed foreign policy over the advice of his defense and State Department bureaucrats. Um, the other point you made is a very important one. Regardless of, it's never been developed, uh, but the point is the Soviets believed it could be developed. And they were desperate to prevent the United States getting ahead in this uh, new area of uh, nuclear technology. And it was certainly a factor that brought Gorbachev to the negotiation table. Ultimately, uh, Gorbachev made... Um, uh, nuclear reduction in other um, areas of uh, weaponry dependent on the United States abandoning uh, Star Wars. But Reagan's absolute refusal, particularly at the Reykjavik summit of uh, uh, 1986, uh, leads Gorbachev to the conclusion he's never going to give them up. Uh, it's going to take years to develop. So let's get on with the job of reducing other areas of uh, nuclear weaponry uh, because we have to prioritize the renewal of our own economy uh, by spending more on civilian production. Just as a as a sort of a bit of sidebar, you've said that that the the Soviet regime fell uh, shortly after uh, Reagan's uh, time in office, but it sounds like he played no small part in you know that sort of playing out somewhat. Do, do you think that there's a, a bit of a lack of knowledge today about communism and the Soviet era in general, uh, and uh, and just how real the threat of global war was back back then? Yes, <clears throat> I think uh, uh, that's uh, a fair point. Uh, uh, memories are short. Uh, back in the uh, uh, 1980s, uh, there was a real sense that uh, nuclear confrontation was a possibility. Uh, 40% of Americans, in one poll taken in 1984, 
expressed uh, the belief that nuclear war would happen in their lifetime. Uh, and um, the Soviet Union, of course, was an economic basket case, but a military superpower. And uh, it had the weaponry to match the United States. Uh, it, ever since the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962, the Soviet leadership had made it their goal never to be humiliated in another standoff with the United States and made it their ambition to match American nuclear power at huge cost to their economy, I might say. Uh, uh, Gorbachev recognizes uh, that um, this can't go on for much longer. The United, the United States is spending something like 7 to 8% of GDP on defense. The Soviet Union is spending 40%, okay, because its GDP is significantly smaller. And uh, it just doesn't have the capacity uh, for investment in other areas because so much is going into uh, military spending. Uh, and of course, um, uh, people forget now how close uh, we came in the 1980s. The Able Archer episode of 1983 is the most famous one, but uh, uh, just weeks earlier, uh, the Soviet early warning system had registered an incoming missile attack, and it was only the belief of the uh, um, uh, commander uh, on duty uh, uh, that day uh, that probably the um, early warning system had malfunctioned as it had previously uh, that he didn't pass word on to the Kremlin there's an attack Dr. Strangelove uh, <laughs> you've got it you know, <laughs> the 1980s were a dangerous time and uh, I think Ron Reagan you, you asked Many questions ago, I've got to answer this. You asked, what was the area that uh, most surprised you about Ronald Reagan? You know, I had seen him as a one-dimensional, anti-communist, uh, uh, almost warmonger, if you like. Uh, uh, but I quickly came to the realization, as I did the research, that he was never simple, one-dimensional, uh, uh, in his uh, foreign policy attitudes. Uh, uh, he believed in peace through strength. He believed that the only way that peace would come if the United States was stronger than the Soviet Union, that it would force the Soviet Union to the negotiating table. And he told one aide, look, they're running as fast as they can. We haven't even started running yet. When we do, our economy will outproduce theirs to such an extent they'll have to uh, deal with us. And in a way, he was right. You know, uh, look, everybody says it was Mikhail Gorbachev. Mikhail Gorbachev in, uh, established the detente that ended the Cold War. Uh, Mikhail Gorbachev is made man of the decade. Ronald Reagan is. Ronald Reagan, the, I, I got to say this, okay, the liberal left could never acknowledge Reagan's achievement. And I was, maybe still am, part of that liberal left. But uh, my conviction is that uh, he was fundamental uh, to the ending of the Cold War, that it wasn't simply Gorbachev. 
it was Reagan and Gorbachev. Without Reagan, who took a lot of heat from Republican right-wingers, who was vilified as a traitor uh, by uh, conservatives in the United States for daring to deal with the godless communist regime in the Kremlin. He took the heat and he was essential for the uh, uh, for the uh, outcome, successful outcome of the INF Treaty of 1987, and the emergence of uh, the detente that eventually would lay the Cold War to rest. When it's usually dated at the uh, uh, Malta summit of uh, uh, 1989 uh, between uh, Bush and Gorbachev, Bush 41 and Gorbachev. Uh, we're very interested uh, on your take uh, on current politics, but before we turn our attention to Trump and Biden, perhaps you can uh, tell us what separates Reagan from other recent presidents. Would you mind giving us a, a sort of a broad sense of where he sits performance-wise? Yes, I think um, uh, Reagan is separated from uh, other presidents in a number of ways. Uh, in many ways, he is the triumph of an idea, uh, to quote Edward Kennedy. He pursued this idea, big government is a bad thing, uh, high taxes are a bad thing, and uh, strong defense is essential for peace. Uh, he had a clear vision, which I can summarize for you in on three points. I can't do that for any other president I can think of. Uh, not Bill Clinton, not George Bush, not Barack Obama. Maybe I could for Donald Trump, uh, but uh, they would be highly questionable assumptions, and I will leave it at that uh, before we get into Trump. But the first thing, uh, uh, he had clear convictions, and he stood for them. Uh, that said, that said, we haven't discussed when the elephant in the room, as I see it as far as Reagan is concerned, his appalling record on race, okay? Mm -hmm. Black Americans believed Ronald Reagan was a racist. 56% of, of black Americans in the Washington Post poll in uh, 1984 said the president was a racist. They, why did they believe this? Because Reagan cut uh, welfare programs that particularly benefited blacks. He tried to roll back affirmative action programs that had been in place since the 1960s. He, um, uh, he tried to support uh, the existence of lily white Christian schools, uh, which in, in the South, which excluded blacks from enrollment. And most significantly of all, he intensified the war on drugs uh, to the point uh, that uh, uh, federal and state power was used in such a way to massively criminalize not only drug dealing, but drug taking. And it led to the uh, disproportionate incarceration of young black males. Uh, the prison population, both federal and state, mushroomed in the 1980s because of the war on drugs. And you've only got to listen to um, uh, rap, I'm not a rap fan. I like a song with a melody, but uh, I've had to listen to rap to understand the, the hatred for Ronald Reagan. And uh, all yeah, I can do is refer any listeners to Killer Mike and his 2011 song, Ronald Reagan, 
And uh, in 18 says, you know, I'll leave you with these four words. I'm glad Reagan dead. Stark message. <laughs> well, no, that is an important part of the story, and I'm glad uh, you 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 gave us that full picture of, of him. Perhaps we better, while we still have time, turn ourselves uh, to current times. Uh, it would be negligent of us uh, not to ask a presidential uh, scholar uh, about our two most recent presidents. So. Uh, uh, President Trump and President Biden. Perhaps you can give us your general impressions uh, and and maybe compare their presidential image, perhaps? Yes. Well, um, you have in Donald Trump a president who really had very little understanding of what Ronald Reagan had done. In fact, very little understanding of what any other president had done. And um, uh, he is uh, he's not a Reaganite conservative. Uh, he's a conservative populist nationalist. Uh, uh, he doesn't share Reagan's internationalist views. Uh, yes, he shares Reagan's beliefs that uh, tax- cutting taxes is the way to economic growth. Uh, but Trump is much more willing to uh, allow uh, a uh, sort of social welfare state uh, to um, exist and expand than Reagan was. Uh, uh, Re- Reagan had hopes of uh, privatizing social security plans that uh, proved politically suicidal, and in recognition of this, he abandoned them in 1983. But Trump knows that his base has a large blue collar and lower class. Um, uh, element with, and that any tampering uh, with uh, entitlements that benefit white Americans will be politically suicidal. So, the so Trump is this curious mixture, uh, perpetuates the New Deal ethos of economic security to ensure uh, that um, lower middle class and blue collar Americans, predominantly white, but also uh, uh, others uh, are benefited by the state whilst he engages in something that Ronald Reagan never fully engaged in, which was the politics of cultural uh, identity. Trump perfected uh, the um, uh, politics initially developed by Richard Nixon, I would say, of uh, emphasizing uh, whiteness patriotism and identity as as the essence of uh, his political coalition. By identity, I mean not only Christian identity, gun-owning identity, uh, anti-immigration identity, and so forth. Politics, I think, although although Reagan played on it to a certain extent, uh, he, he did engage uh, to win the presidency in what's called dog whistle politics, uh, whereby he uses certain coded messages to appeal to white voters, talking of welfare queens. He doesn't talk about black welfare queens, but he talks about welfare queens who cheat the system. And the image that always comes up of a welfare queen is a black welfare queen. So Ron Reagan did play on it, but didn't develop it to the same extent that Trump did. Uh, Trump, in his four years in office, uh, talks of uh, this relationship um, uh, with his base. He's not interested in expanding his 
he's only interested in mobilizing his base with the slogan, Make America Great Again. Ronald Reagan was always looking to expand his base because he realized he needed the support of Democrats in order to win the presidency. Uh, a lot of Democratic identifiers voted for him in 1980 and 1984. And throughout his tenure, the Democrats controlled the House of Representatives. For Reagan to get his program through in 1981, he requires the support of at least 40 to 50 Democrats in the House. Where is he going to find them? He's going to find them in the South. And he targets Southern Democratic members of the House of Representatives, wins them over to his program uh, in a demonstration of cross-party politics that would be impossible in today's America. So uh, uh, I think uh, Trump left a legacy that uh, was light on policy achievement. You asked me what is Trump's greatest policy achievement, tax cut of 2017, whether you like it or not, he got it through. He didn't deliver on, thank goodness, on uh, 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 elimination of uh, Obamacare. Uh, he uh, um, did not uh, deliver on a whole host of promises that he had made in terms of uh, uh, eliminating uh, government. Uh, but in foreign policy, I do know of uh, people who will say Trump got it right because he was the first person to warn, the first president to warn that China was a threat to the 21st century. And Ewan, what about um, just quickly the Abraham Accords and um, uh, if you are a straight down the line conservative, you would have to be happy with his uh, Supreme Court yeah. uh, victories. Because, I mean, that's going to last generations. That is going to last. Sorry, I should have said that. Uh, that's the kind of uh, uh, thing you forget about Trump. It's an 80-20 thing. I feel like the Supreme Court, if it's the Prioto principle, the 80-20, like his Supreme Court victory is decisive now, particularly in this era of polarisation. I think so. Uh, and I think it is going to be his most long-lasting legacy. Uh, um Previous presidents have uh, nominated uh, uh, Supreme Court justices. Ronald Reagan nominated four, but he didn't change the composition of the Supreme Court dramatically. Trump has, because he's chosen three conservative justices, one of whom, uh, Amy Corey Barrett, of course, uh, replaced uh, one of the most um, uh, liberal uh, Supreme Court justices. So, what we have today is something we have not had since Franklin D. Roosevelt's first term, a conservative majority of 6-3 on the Supreme Court. That led to confrontation in Roosevelt's second term, uh, and the court backed down. Uh, in the first term, it had uh, rejected or declared unconstitutional much of Roosevelt's uh, New Deal legislation. Um, the dangers of uh, obstructing a popular president uh, persuaded the Supreme Court in 1937 to back down and accept the New Deal. I can't see the same thing happening today because there isn't the clear majority in the country for liberalism that there was back in 1936-7, 1936, 
Roosevelt wins the biggest election uh, majority in American history, both in popular terms and electoral college terms. Biden is a narrowly elected president. And of course, 60% of Republicans believe he's an illegitimate president. So there isn't that uh, popular uh, uh, sort of uh, that kind of uh, legitimacy that the presidency can use in seeking to uh, uh, change the Supreme Court. Uh, Biden has had one pick, of course, but it's like for like. Uh, and it's how the Supreme Court is going to um, operate in the next two to three years is going to be critical uh, because it is going, if current indicators are, are upheld, it is going to intensify and maximize polarization rather than help bring the country together. Well, since we're 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 fast running out of time, I, I have to ask you: the obvious question uh, is, uh, who wins in twenty twenty four? Because and I've said this before on another podcast: every outcome of this of that election, take the midterms out for a second. Every outcome is amazing. So if Biden runs and he wins, we've got a a man of advanced age, uh, uh, a very venerable uh, age uh, in in the office. Uh, if um, if if for some reason he doesn't run, it, it it could be who knows Kamala, Pete Buttigieg, who knows who it could be, who they put forward, and then if Trump runs or DeSantis runs or either of them win, I find that this is a case where any th- any of the possible outcomes are showstoppers. What do you think? Yes, uh, we've uh, reached a stage where apparently every presidential election is the most important presidential election in history. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And uh, um, it it is difficult to look forward. Uh, The second coming of Trump is a distinct possibility. Much will depend on uh, how his uh, endorsed candidates do in the... um, 2022 midterms. Uh, watch out in particular for the uh, Senate uh, race in uh, uh, Ohio and the gubernatorial race in Pennsylvania as indicators of whether uh, Trump's word still brings out the, the faithful. Uh, the, he's, the primaries. Three- are, he's he's doing well in the primaries, though, right? He's put, he's sort of like put people forward, and they seem to be. Sometimes uh, he didn't get uh, the governor of uh, Georgia nominated, uh, mm. whom he resents deeply for failing to uh, help him uh, change the Georgia election result in 2020. But you're right. Uh, um, the, the big question, of course, is will the, um, uh, will the Republicans do as well as anticipated? I mean, if the Republicans do badly in 2022, um, that will have an effect on 2024. The trouble is that uh, incumbents party always, almost always loses seats in the first midterm. So that's bad news for the Democrats. Worst economic indicators since the early 1980s. uh, And uh, uh, a, uh, a, a, a group of Republican identifying voters whose resentments are fueled 
uh, by uh, the belief that the current president is illegitimate and therefore have reason to turn out the vote in large numbers. Usually, uh, midterms are low participation elections, but I suspect 2022 could be different. So you'd expect the Republicans to win. Um, it's a question of then what Donald Trump wants to do. Uh, you mentioned that uh, you would have a venerable president in Biden one. He'd be 82. Well, um, Trump would be 78. Uh, and his health is not, it's a closely guarded secret. Uh, I just wonder whether he, he would be satisfied uh, with anointing the chosen successor, possibly DeSantis, uh, and uh, uh, saying, you know, I'm going to leave it to my disciples to carry on my work. Uh, he would find uh, redemption. Donald Trump cannot. Donald Trump persuades himself he hasn't lost in 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 2020 uh, because Donald Trump never loses in his own imagination. Perhaps it'll be sufficient for him to uh, gain revenge by uh, uh, being the uh, kingmaker in uh, 2024. But you're absolutely right. It is a uh, uh, an, an election that a lot of outcomes are possible. And uh, any hope that the age of polarization is drawing to an end is illusory. Uh, if anything, things are getting worse. And uh, it's going to have a huge effect on America's role in the world. It, where Donald Trump to regain the presidency in 2024. Would the United States continue to be such an active player in uh, the Ukraine war, in terms of supplying the Ukrainians? Uh, Donald Trump uh, has more than once said that the United States should quit NATO. Uh, for many, a Trump, for, ma for many pundits, a Trump victory in 2024 would be manna from heaven for Vladimir Putin. Well, just a tiny, tiny follow-up is probably the last, the last question we can ask. I, but I have to ask about the Democrats because it feels like I heard it, a fascinating uh, take from Van Jones the, just the other day. He said, and this really resonated because he was saying it to, I think, CNN hosts who were dumbfounded when he was saying it. He said, the party is in trouble because they are the party of, of the elites and obviously people who need stuff. So the the problem is they speak strangely. They talk about Latinx. They talk about BIPOC. He's like normal people don't understand what these words, what what they they don't mean anything to, to mainstream voters. Um, and then what James Carville calls faculty lounge politics. And then we've got uh, the people who genuinely need stuff, that, but the, the, you know, minorities or people who need things. But he's like, you're, we're over, the Democrats are over promising to these people. They're saying, we're going to get you reparations. You know, we're not going to get you, like, they're not focusing on on what you know if you're a clinton democrat uh or, or someone who wants to get you know to have material change in in people's lives the democrats currently are in a bit of a bind that that and and it and this kind of um strange situation they're in is is perhaps going to lead people down into the hands of, of donald trump or DeSantis. yes um the democrats uh at elite level, are far too concerned with issues that don't mean much to uh, their core constituents. Uh, 
the issue of reparations is one. Um, dare I say it, I'm not sure that gun control is a winner either, uh, even though it's desperately needed in the United States. I think um, part of the problem, you mentioned faculty lounge politics. The Democrats have become taken up uh, by causes which are dear to the hearts of better educated voters. And it's quite significant that whereas once the Republicans held the lead, the advantage amongst the better educated, now the Democrats do. It tends to forget that uh, there is still a huge number of people there are more people who have only a high school education than who have a university degree or better. The Democrats have forgotten the white working class, if I can put it that way. Mm. And that is fatal. This is the party that came to prominence because of the support of the white working class. In moving on to issues, race had to be addressed. There's no doubt about that. And the, the Democrats were right to do so. Uh, but in moving on to issues that are beyond bread and butter issues, uh, the party has entered dangerous and choppy waters. You know, what do the Democrats stand for? Uh, Biden, build back better. Yeah, nice alliteration. But what does it actually mean? Uh, we know what Trump stands for. That's Trump's genius. We don't know what the Democrats stand for or what enough Democrats stand for. Who are the Democrats? Are they Joe Manchin or Joe Biden? They all hate Joe Manchin. They're, they're all complaining about him every week. They say, yeah, and but, that's the other hang, one. Hang on a second. Joe Manchin is also the Democratic senator for the most Republican state in the nation. How is mm. he won West Virginia when the Democrats haven't won West Virginia since 1996? in the presidential election. Well, I just know they slag him off every week. Oh, yeah, sure, they're, sure. They're saying he's holding up the, holding up the whole show. Yeah, the, that's, that's the problem. You know, one of the most idiotic slogans ever coined in American political history is defend the police. People want security, for goodness sake. They, they want a better police force. They don't want a defunded police force. And... Uh, you know, I, I think the Democrats misread a lot of the messages uh, because of the groups that are uh, bouncing ideas and demands into their uh, party agenda. And uh, yeah, yeah, it, it is difficult to see how the Democrats can put together a winning agenda. Uh, they cannot rely on an anti-Trump vote. That worked in 2020. Uh, will it work in 2024? Remains very much to be seen. Well, Ewan, sadly, uh, I think we're we're running out of time here. Uh, for our final question, we'd like to know what you're reading right now. <laughs> you mean serious or popular fiction? Take it as you like. All right, all right. I'm going to uh, uh, I'm going to speak on behalf of my fellow Welshman, Ken Follett. And I have come late in life to Ken Follett, and I am wading, wading my way through. I am turning the pages with ever-increasing rapidity of his quartet of Kingsbury novels, uh, 
which begin in the end of the 10th century and go through to the end of the Tudor period. There's been historical literature of the finest quality, superbly researched, excellently written, and uh, has opened my eyes to a period of history where my ignorance was almost total. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. We'll definitely have to check out uh, Ken. He does those very big books that I see. Yeah, what well, uh, Pillars of the Earth, I'm just looking at it now, uh, is the uh, best known of the quartet. Uh, 1,100 pages, but I read it in five days. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you reckon it for it. You could not put it down. <laughs> Well, Ewan, I just want to say thank you for being so generous with time. We went way over, but I could listen to you talk about presidents all day. And um, I susp- I think sometime before uh, 2024, we need to get together, talk FDR and how it's all going, if it's okay with you. Very much so. I very much enjoyed it. Thank you for the opportunity to uh, engage in conversation with you. No worries. And I encourage everyone to uh, check out your books. Um, I particularly um, recommend, obviously, Reagan, which we talked about today in American Icon, uh, your latest book, FDR, which I have yet to read. And I also really enjoyed uh, the presidential image. I think that the chapter on uh, your chapter was, was obviously great, but the, but the chapter on Trump was, was fantastic as well. Some of the, some of the, the most serious uh, writing on Trump that I had, that I had seen uh, as of yet which was very interesting. Good, and I will pass on your kind words to my friend Tim Stanley, a Daily Telegraph journalist on the opposite side of the aisle to me. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> bringing, it all to, bringing the worlds together. <laughs> uh, wonderful. Thanks very much, Ewan. 